morning. Welcome to our special Martin Luther King Jr. Day Chapel. Delighted to have you here today. Um, I did want to make a quick announcement. As you hopefully know, the presidential inauguration is today, and um, the TV in the mailroom is on. Um, I assume that the TV in Andreas is probably available as well, and so you can head there right after here if you don't have class. Um, the oath of office will be at 11.55, so you'll have plenty of time to get over there. Um, today, as you know, um, is a special day. It's an opportunity here at Covenant for us to reflect on the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, before I introduce our speaker, would you join me for prayer? Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Father, thank you that you are a God of great love, um, a God of great justice. Father, thank you that you are active in writing injustice. Um, and Father, today as we think about the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we ask that we would be encouraged and challenged um, to walk in his footsteps as he walked in the footsteps of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Our speaker this morning is Mrs. Karen Angela Ellis. For 19 years, Karen Angela Ellis has enjoyed a ministry of encouragement in the performing arts. She became a Christian in 1993, the same year she received her master's degree from Yale University's fine art program. Karen has since performed internationally on radio, in radio, television, film, and on Broadway national tours, as well as in rural developing world villages. She has sung up and down the Eastern Seaboard with the Bill Edgar Trio, and she has also been privileged to travel, teach, and sing worldwide through mission organizations such as World Concern and International Christian Response, a daughter ministry of the Voice of the Martyrs ministering to the persecuted church. Karen has her Master of Arts in Religion and Systematic Theology from Westminster Theological Seminary, and she is continually fascinated by the zone where human rights and theology intersect. She's delighted to minister and teach alongside her husband, Dr. Carl F. Ellis, Jr. Um, she's become a friend of mine. I'm delighted to know her. I'm thankful that you all get a chance to hear her this morning. So please join me in welcoming Mrs. Karen Angela Ellis. Let me tell you a story. In the musky dank of a dark jail cell, he sits alone. He lives in a world where the guilty often go free, while the innocent are slandered, used, abused, and discarded. Children are tossed aside. Women are violated and devalued. Peaceful men are either imprisoned or hunted down and killed like animals. Speaking truth to the powers that govern the laws of the land is risky business. And all too often, there's no true liberty, no freedom, nor justice. His heart swells with righteous indignation within his breast and issues a cry that echoes through the empty halls. Lord Jesus, 
How long must we suffer this way? Lord Jesus, how long must we suffer this way? How long, how long? He suffers for truth, for a people, for a person. He suffers for what is right. And hands folded, head bent in an attitude of prayer, he sits amidst the echoes of those who may have prayed there in this cell long before him. Thieves, whores, murderers, rapists, the guilty and the innocent, the notorious and the nondescript, convicts all in the court of men. His name is the Apostle Paul. His name is John Bunyan. His name is Dr. Martin Luther King. I tell this story deliberately so that we can see slowly from this pit of human judgment, glory descends. His heart is gladdened and he begins to write. To beloved friends, he writes letters that were unknown to their apostolic author, Holy Writ. He writes the story of a pilgrim's progress that would point us through the murky waters of life to hope in a savior. He writes a letter from a Birmingham jail that would become a treatise for a nation bound by the chains of its own making. All of these letters born from the tears of unjust suffering will point us heavenward to the eternal judge greater than ourselves. I paint this scene this way for a reason. Our African-American and European church experiences often run on parallel tracks, moving and advancing the kingdom's train, yet rarely touching each other. Often African-American church history occurs in the margins of special courses and programs and guest special instructors. So I do thank Dr. Halverson today for this opportunity to speak on our shared history. One indivisible story of the same indivisible Christ. It has to be taken together, as the sum of its parts are far greater than the parts individuated. As the Apostle Paul so beautifully wrote, we being many are one body in Christ. Today, as we remember Dr. Martin Luther King, and as we also remember the brave men and women of all colors who stood with him, I come with a question. What might we have in common with all who suffer in chains, who lay down their lives for what is true? Today, in these increasingly dark days, there's neither time nor benefit for me to press either Dr. King's orthodoxy or his personal ethics, any more than it would benefit me to press or defend the orthodoxy of the Puritans, who may have bought and sold slaves themselves, who may have run the ships that brought my ancestors here. Rather, I acknowledge that like Tolkien's Gollum, we all have our precious. Our heroes, to whose failings we often are half blind, yet fully sighted in seeing them on the opposing side, those whose flaws our detractors point out 
yet we so easily dismiss in favor of their victories. Those whose cultures we dismiss with the modern declamation, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Better to say our heroes are, like us, sinners, human, prone to error, and in desperate need of redemption of every aspect of their lives. So for a few minutes, if you'll grant me the kindness of the same historical indulgence requested for so many others who've left us with rich truths, allow me to suggest what we may learn from Dr. Martin Luther King of liberty, justice, and the imago Dei, the image of God, for the sake of that image in ourselves and in those who live around us. To fully understand what was accomplished through Dr. King's teaching, we have to first dig deeper than the struggle's name. The Civil Rights Movement, it's a cumbersome, large concept full of history and rich images. We have to dig deeper than that to its foundation, human rights. You see, human rights are based on the truth that worth and dignity is bestowed on every human creature by a transcendent reference point. A God above us who alone can judge the value and worth of a person as their creator. This value isn't subject to the fluctuation of any market. It can't be legislated away or separated from any individual by anyone of comparable or equal status because it doesn't come from this earthly realm, nor does it come from any earthly source. Now, civil rights, on the other hand, are legislated rights of the human state that are ideally based on the value system of human rights. They're set by the same creator God and in whose image humankind is made. If human rights were a violin, then civil rights would be the music that the violin produces. That is, if the values are in tune with a perfect pitch from a source outside of the instrument itself. While the civil rights movement is remembered as a social struggle for fair legislation, the struggle for human rights and justice on earth as it is in heaven is fundamentally and has always been a theological issue. Foundational to that issue is the image of God. Consider this. It's 1950, long before many of you were even a thought in your daddy's eye. It's the 1950s. It's the awakening of the civil rights era. World War II is fresh in everybody's minds. Memories of the aftermath in Europe of a society gone crazy didn't exist in just black and white Kodachrome prints, but it existed in the vivid color of memory. The darkness of a place where the value of a people had been left to popular opinion was exposed to the light, and it was ugly. One person or one people group elevated themselves as the ideal human, while others who didn't fit that ideal were punished, ostracized, marginalized, silenced, or exterminated through fear, intimidation, and violence. The images of the American soldiers, uh, the people that the American soldiers called the walking dead, the survivors of the war worldwide, were burned into the world's consciousness with a fierceness that broke people's hearts. Yet many a World War II soldier of color, like my own father and my husband's father, who couldn't avoid the similarities between the legal dehumanization of a country's own citizens and the Jim Crow legislation they saw at home. On the very soil that so boldly proclaimed freedom and justice for all, there was often no justice, 
limited access to freedom, which is really no freedom at all. It seems that America had suffered a collective cognitive dissonance about her laws, which had to necessarily be either stared down or suppressed. She had, in essence, looked into the gospel mirror as a nation, yet in the spirit of James I, deceived herself like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. It was on the heels of this collective turning away that Dr. King wrote these words in a 1962 address prepared for an annual church conference. Dr. King said, so long as the Negro is treated as a means to an end, so long as he is seen as anything less than a person of sacred worth, the image of God is abused in him and consequently and proportionately lost by those who inflict the, the abuse. In other words, the person who abuses the image of God in another person debases the image of God in himself. And this image of God theology is buried in the hearts of all men so that they are without excuse. We know Paul has left us in his letter from his prison cell, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. That includes us, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. The voluntary suppression of the truth in unrighteousness always leads to an ontological schizophrenia deep in the seat of our identity, both in those who are oppressed and in those who are oppressed. Mrs. Ellis? Yes? What did you just say? Can you repeat that for me, please? All right, back it up. <laughs> I'll give it to you again. When we push away God's reality and his truth, it causes a deep confusion as to who we are and others who are made to be at our fundamental core. We lose our anchor to reality. We lose sight of our creator. We forget who we are and we become no better than animals. What God says is priceless, we say is worthless. What is holy is deemed profane and the profane declared divine. What God decrees filthy, we somehow convince ourselves is clean. What is created to be used for a divinely set-aside purpose is misused for another. Right becomes wrong, pain becomes pleasure, and cruelty is perceived as kind. We deny the reality of the created order and the world the creator has made, and we become trapped in an image of our own making. And like spiritual schizophrenics, we lose touch with ultimate reality, with things as God says they are. As spiritual schizophrenics, we live in a self-constructed world where we determine the rules, not God. 
and then subject others to our reality. We begin to dehumanize those around us for our own selfish advantage. It's in this climate that individuals and societies begin to crumble and despair. Some people redefine their image according to their own value system, not God's. That's idolatry. However, denying the image of God in another based on that distorted image is scandalous both in heaven and on earth. This is no longer spiritual insanity, no longer a personal spiritual confusion. It is now passed into the realm of spiritual abuse. It is fundamentally sin. True to Paul's words, we become like animals ourselves. As we debase the image of God in others, we redefine others as animals at best, strange creatures having human form but no soul. We lose our humanity. Dr. King, in his teaching and in his writings and in his life, sought to reclaim the truth of God for both the oppressed and the oppressor. Historian Richard Wills points out that in the face of an America who was completely blind to the injustice of its justice system, the social implications of King's teaching were profound. Irrespective of one's social status, although perhaps separated even by an economic gulf, all members of the human family were considered morally bound by the tie of their common humanity, and moreover, by their common sacredness, having been created in the image of God. So as we think about this, and as we see this week, all the images that people will pass around on Facebook and social media, as we see all the images of social media, of, uh, of the civil rights movement that we've come to know and sort of have become anesthetized against, in light of this, we can view these iconic images with fresh eyes and renewed minds. One image in particular stands out. On February 1st, 1968, Two Memphis garbage collectors, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, were crushed to death by a malfunctioning garbage truck. Twelve days later, frustrated by the city's response to a, the latest event and a long pattern of neglect and abuse of its black employees, 1,300 black men from the Memphis Department of Public Works went on strike. Garbage piled up. The men walked. The sanitation workers' strike is of far greater significance, though, than the mere temporal words of a dissatisfied people. They're a staunch declaration of divine truth in the face of a nation whose legislation had for so long denied God's reality. So when you see the iconic picture of long lines of men standing in soups, carrying placards that proclaim, I am a man. That is both an empowerment, a declaration of truth, and it's also an indictment. It rings with the clarion weight of the apostles, the church fathers, the reformers, and Dr. King. The simple four-word phrase, I am a man, carries with it the subtext of truth. I am human. I am made in the image of God. See me. Hear me. Our creator God is and can be the only sound basis for justice. But what shall we say of liberty? Liberty and justice for all. What shall we say of freedom? 
Liberty and justice are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Prison Minister Gary Bentley recently shared three salient points about freedom that I believe are valuable here. His first point says, essentially, liberty is freedom. Freedom from something and freedom to do something. It's active. Yes, and as sons and daughters of Adam, we understand in a unique way that not even Adam could fully destroy God's image in his creatures. So profound was the gift that was bestowed. And then, it gets better. In union with Christ by the Spirit of Christ, we understand too that the image is miraculously restored and will be glorified to better than it was. And we're able to see more clearly when we violate that image in others or are in danger of violating it in ourselves. The power of Christ restores the spiritual schizophrenic to reality. It's not a temporary drug. We all once were rebellious against God's reality, his creation, and his purposes. And like the image of God, this imbued freedom cannot be legislated away. It cannot be taken from us, for nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Second point. Liberty is freedom from slavery or bondage. It is initially freedom from sins, power, and guilt. In other words, no matter what color we are, we who have been delivered from sins, power, and guilt are poised better than anyone else to tell others of freedom. The good news is that they've already been set free and are of greater worth than they could ever imagine, purchased by the highest bidder in the universe with his own body and blood. He alone knew the price of each soul. He alone stood on the auction block. He alone faced the whipping post and the lynching tree so that we could all be free. Who better than all of us as former slaves to extol the beauty of freedom? Third point. Liberty is freedom from shame that could bind me as well as freedom from the tyranny of others' opinions, obligations, and expectations. Now, this is the difficult part. And we heard an amazing message about it last Friday. It's one thing for a man and his society to look into a mirror, see himself for who he really is, and walk away with no desire to change that image. It's entirely another matter to be the one who holds the mirror to him. Like those who suffered before us for truth, we still, to this day, live in a world where guilty often go free. The innocent are slandered, used, abused, discarded. Speaking truth into systems that govern the laws of the land is still risky business and becoming more risky every day. And all too often, there's no freedom or justice for those who do. And spiritual abuse of the image of God is big business. It garners great power and wealth for those who indulge in it. There are now at least 27 million slaves in the world today. Some say it's as high as 100 million because they can't be counted. Human trafficking continues to explode with thousands of end users supporting the modern slavery movement by simply clicking on the mouse on their laptop, cell phone, or iPad. Sadly, purveyors of pornography don't even realize that they are willing end users in the modern slave trade. 
It's called a victimless crime, but there really is no such thing. He who abuses the image of God in another debases the image of God in himself. Halfway across the world, young girls are hunted and shot like animals as they defy their own country's version of Jim Crow legislation simply because they want to go to school and learn. Children and grown men work in horrible factory conditions so that others can live comfortably in nations and conditions that they will never enjoy. We've seen in the news lately of women routinely gang-raped in too many countries to name across the globe, and their perpetrators walk away free. People build communities on top of garbage heaps, not unlike the garbage heaps outside the gates of first-century Rome where unwanted babies were exposed to the elements to die. The city of Chicago, which has had 500-plus murders in 2012, has already had more murders this year than there are days. And our media remains silent. And in many cities, including our own, Children live in educational and economic and nutritional wastelands due to circumstance and bad public policy, vulnerable to the cycle of the non-achiever culture that surrounds them. Many people live and die under such circumstances with no one to affirm the value of their life or to mourn the weight of their death. God the Father takes injustice and violence against his image very seriously. If you don't believe me, just read the prophets. Do you see it? Or do we turn our back to our computer screens and coffee houses, numbed by the magnitude of it all? Our societies and systems are as flawed as the people who've made them. We must learn to despise every system that is set up against the truth of God and yet love the people who are involved in them. And because we have a unique glimpse into the beauty of the image of God in every person, peer, enemy, or stranger, or friend, we have the responsibility to speak in love against violations of that image. Now it gets harder. The systems of the world are trained to hate truth. Those who benefit and profit from violation of the Imago Dei will hate you. The Apostle Paul and Dr. King and so many others in church history lost their lives for the sake of God's precious image. Many for the rest of this month will extol Dr. King's life as exceptional. And it was on many, many, many levels. His cause, however, his life, and especially his death were normal Christian living. It's difficult in our culture today to understand someone willing to die for the cause of Christ, for the freedom of another. We ask ourselves today, are we willing to die the comfortable life, to die to the comfortable life, willing to die to our own desires to exchange them for what may be better? Because it's not Dr. King who we desire to emulate. It's not the martyrs enumerated by John Fox. It's not the Puritans. It's not even the Apostle Paul. It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we willing to follow his example of death, resurrection, and glory here on earth? 
Just yesterday, my pastor said that a son or a daughter should bear some family resemblance to the parent. If they don't, you got a problem. And with this, I agree. The resemblance should be striking. Mrs. Ellis, Mrs. Ellis, yes, I see that hand. Mrs. Ellis, I'm busy. I got a lot, I'm a college student. I got a lot of stuff to do. My schedule is tight. I, how am I gonna find some organization or some group? Can't I just click on like on a Facebook page and isn't that enough and support some organization there? It's supposed to cost you your time. It's supposed to cost you your energy. This is normal Christian living. Anybody know why the Dead Sea was dead? It had no outlet. So everything was pouring into it, but it had nowhere for the good, the, the, the good water to go, so it just stagnated and became a cess. Pour out what you've received. Find a place or an individual to pour it out. And if you're doing it already, great. Do it more. In Dr. King's own words, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular but one must take it simply because it's right. Though our heroes are often exceptional men and women of their times, it's not Dr. King or, the, or them that we desire to emulate ultimately. We know it's Jesus Christ. And our generation stands at a crossroads, ready to turn the corner into an age where justice, true justice, may cost us dearly. I pray that as active participants in our culture, we lack neither the courage, nor the compassion, nor the correct discernment to seek justice and approve that which is good, no matter what the cost. Won't you bow your heads as we meditate on what we just heard? I told Jesus it would be all right if he changed my name. I told Jesus it would be all right if he changed my name. I told Jesus it would be all right if he changed my name and Jesus told me people will hate you if I change your name Jesus told me people will hate you if I change your name. Jesus told me people will hate you if you change your name. 
don't, Jesus? It's still all right. You can change my name.